Hello, everyone, and welcome to the future of generative AI in healthcare. It's a program we are producing together with our partner, VSP. I'm Stephen Collins, the CEO of Matter. Our mission is to accelerate the pace of change of healthcare, and we do a number of things to advance that purpose. We run an incubator for healthcare startups. Since we launched in 2015, we've worked with and supported a thousand companies from around the world that range from very early to growth stage startups. Our member companies have raised more than $5 billion now to fuel their growth. We also run accelerators, six to eight a year, all in partnership with large health systems and life sciences companies and payers and associations. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we expect to kick off uh, one that's focused on maternal health in partnership with HCSC, Organon, Stryker, UChicago Medicine, Baycare, uh, Parkview Health, and the Lairdahl Million Lives Fund. Uh, we also work with large enterprises to help them build their innovation capabilities. We have a suite of education and training and insight services that help them make sense of emerging technologies and figure out how to harness them. Uh, and we're a nexus for people who are passionate about healthcare innovation. We bring people together to be inspired and learn and connect with each other. And we work with organizations such as VSP, to put together events such as this one today. Today's uh, conversation is about the future of generative AI and healthcare. Um, you don't have to try very hard to see some pretty spectacular claims about the potential of AI to transform everything, including healthcare. Um, our discussion today will be about what's real right now, what's coming, um, what are potential pitfalls, and where the real areas of opportunity that we should all be focused on. We put this program together, as I mentioned, with one of our um, corporate partners, it's the VSP Global Innovation Center, which is the innovation hub of VSP Vision. Um, VSP is America's largest vision company. Um, their mission is to empower human potential through sight. They have 85 million members and a network of more than 41,000 doctors. They recently published a report on the future of generative AI in healthcare. And we have three leaders with us today to discuss the report and the space uh, generally. So Jay Anderson is the head of emerging technology at the VSP Global Innovation Center. Jay has um, held strategy and innovation roles across a variety of industries, including automotive and publishing and technology, and brings a really unique perspective to this conversation. Um, Alex Lennox-Miller is the lead analyst for healthcare IT at CB Insights, which is one of the leading companies providing intelligence to businesses about technology. And Alex collaborated with VSP on the generative AI report. Uh, and we have Hilary Gosher, who's a managing director at Insight Partners, um, which is a venture capital firm with $100 billion under management. They have 800 investments, including 75 in healthcare and life sciences. And Hillary started and leads a group within um, Insight of 150 operators and growth partners who help Insight's portfolio companies scale. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, if anyone has questions uh, that they want to ask, um, drop them into the the Q&A function. I'll do my best to weave them into the conversation as we go. And with that, um, let's get started. So um, kick things off, uh, starting with Jay, uh, what should the 
audience know about you and your organization and how your work relates to generative AI and healthcare? Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, Jay Anderson, um, I'm the head of emerging technology at uh, VSP's Global Innovation Center. Um, like Stephen said, that I've got a pretty broad background in terms of different industries, um, most recently in automotive. Uh, the GIC, the Global Innovation Center, is what we call the lens into the future for VSP. And we focus on three areas primarily, sustainability, uh, health access and equity, and patient experience. And so I feel like emerging technology kind of underpins and enables us to be able to do work in all three of those spaces. Um, we've been learning as much as we can about AI for a few years now, but especially generative AI since ChatGPT took off. Uh, I think that's gonna be a focus for us for the foreseeable future. And thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here, um, Alex. Yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, CB Insights is a market intelligence and strategic intelligence company. Um, we have a tech platform uh, with hundreds of millions, if not more, data points on uh, venture capital firms, startups, patents, partnerships, business relationships. And as analysts, we use that to write about uh, the current state of the startup landscape, how technology is evolving, uh, and how that's going to affect our different areas of focus. Obviously, you know, over the last 18-ish months, um, generative AI has been one of, if not the biggest topic in healthcare technology. And so it's something that we have looked at a lot, written a lot about, um, including the, the report with VSP and um, expecting to be covering it for uh, for a good long time going forward. Um, well, I always enjoy the CB Insights uh, reports and glad that you're uh, here as part of the conversation. Um, Hillary. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm with Insight Partners. Um, we are a global venture capital and private equity firm investing primarily in SaaS-based technology companies, of which healthcare plays a large component, given just the enormous impact that uh, that healthcare has on the GDP uh, and the enormous role that it plays in our society. So today we've done about $2 billion of investment uh, into healthcare itself, um, into healthcare companies. Uh, we have about 35 active companies, but we've made about um, more than 50 investments over time in healthcare companies. Um, and, and several of those companies have got um, components of AI associated with the products that they provide and or um, they're actually born in AI. Uh, in other words, they are AI from the get-go. So excited to uh, talk with you today about um, what those companies are doing and where we're seeing innovation in the industry. Uh, and as Stephen mentioned, uh, in, in addition to my work with these companies, I, I also lead what we call Insight Onsite. Um, it's the, the value-add organization that Insight has uh, over 150 people strong who are experts in scaling software companies and who work alongside our portfolio companies on-site, helping to help them scale. Um, it's such a great model. Um, thanks for um, being here. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Alex, uh, I want to Start with you. In the past um, few years, the number of terms that people use to describe different aspects of artificial intelligence seems to be growing about as fast as NVIDIA's um, market capitalization. 
help us center the conversation. What is generative AI? We we don't need this forum to be a technical conversation, um, but I do think it's important that we all have a a, fra a framing of what it is that we're actually talking about. So how is that different from machine learning or natural language processing or neural networks or all the other um, things that people use and have been using to refer to different aspects of artificial intelligence? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, the term AI has been thrown around, you know, for so many different purposes and in so many different ways. And now we're seeing generative AI, you know, experience kind of the same uh, spread. Generative AI, you know, just to give it the, the most basic definition, has to be an AI algorithm that is creating something. That's really the fundamental difference between generative AI and the kinds of analytic AI that, that we have been seeing for you know, a while now. Those kinds of algorithms, machine learning algorithms, are fundamentally about identifying correlations and relationships between uh, variables within a data set. And that's how we've seen them used. It gets used to identify trends within a huge data set or, or find potential indicators of disease or, or you know, when a patient is, is going to be most likely to need attention or most at risk of hospitalization. Generative AI has a component which is doing that, but then it has a second element, which is creating a new data set that is statistically equivalent to the data set it was trained on or analyzed. And that's the fundamental generative part. It has to be creating something, whether that's an image, a movie, a piece of text, um, an overlay on a screen. If it's not doing that, it may be very sophisticated AI. It may be using some of the same technology. It may be using some of the same software structures, but it's not generative. I'm so glad I asked that question. I feel smarter now. Um, Hillary, uh, the hype around generative AI has kind of climbed up the um, the Gartner hype. I'm sorry, I'm not saying the CB Insights hype curve, but I think Gartner made a name for themselves with this hype curve a long time ago. So it's just vaulted up uh, there faster than a lot of other technologies that I've seen over time that at least take a little bit longer to climb up the hype curve. And the, the expectations um, seem to be um, extremely inflated now about what it uh, what it is or can be doing um is that your take and and what are you what are you seeing to sort of bring it back to earth that has real potential in the next 12 to 18 months or maybe is even today creating real value in healthcare yeah, thanks, Stephen. So, you know, I, I want to start with a quote, um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, for those of you who are sci-fi fans, and I am, uh, you know, any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I do think that we're starting to touch magic. Um, there is, uh, there's a lot of hype for sure. Um, and you see that at the inflated valuations that, you know, um, is being paid for AI companies across the industry. On the other hand, we're already starting to see glimmers of value that's going to be created 
then I think we're just touching the tip of the iceberg, really. So, you know, if I think about where the magic is going to be deployed, um, I think of it in two ways, uh, certainly in the U.S. healthcare system. One is fix the system. So fix and improve the current system, which is the healthcare system, the administrative landscape. Uh, and then the second is enhance the outcomes. So fix the system, enhance the outcomes for patients. And in terms of fix the system, um, you know, there's just so much low hanging fruit where, where AI and GAI um, can really drive value. Uh, claims adjudication, um, batch processing, um, you know, revenue cycle management, uh, clinical note taking. So, I'll, you know, one of our portfolio companies, Alma, um, provides a um, a solution for for providers of behavioral health to work with um, to work with patients. Um, about seventy five percent of the behavioral health therapy calls that patients have are on Zoom. Those calls are rec rec recorded or can be recorded now. Um, taking into account all the privacy and the HIPAA policies, et cetera. But, um, you know, AI is able to create those clinical notes. Um, obviously, the therapist is the person who is validating them, approving them, editing them. But it is saving patients, uh, um, it is saving therapists, you know, 15 minutes or so at the end of every call um, or at the end of every session. And that adds up significantly in terms of their quality of life, as well as their ability to focus on patients, not focus on paperwork. Um, so those are the kind of things that I think the magic can start to work on and sort of fix the system admin stuff. And then in terms of um, enhanced outcomes, um, you know, we're starting to see the in early innings of, you know, really just um, physician augmentation, for want of a better word. So, um, you know, one of our portfolio companies, uh, we actually have two, ScreenPoint Medical um, is reading mammograms. Um, the AI is reading mammograms and Covera Health is reading uh, radiology x-rays. And both of those are augmenting the experience and the capability of the existing radiologist to diagnose appropriately. These are just basic stuff, but it's already massively important um, and, and, and having huge, uh, huge impact. So, um, you know, when I think about um, areas, uh, you know, in, in the outcome component of improving the lives of patients, we really think about what's AI's ability to support in terms of preventative care. Um, and we can talk further about that as we as we get along, because I know my panelists have other stuff to say, but preventative, how do you think about diagnostic? So how does AI help diagnose like with radiology and augmenting radiologists? How do you treat and what are treatment pathways that can be enhanced through um, uh, through radiology, I mean, through through AI, and then the final follow-up. Um, and so I really think about it in terms of prevent, diagnose, treat, and follow-up. Um, and AI is going to have an impact in all four areas. And do you see the, just to go back to Alex's um, uh, definition of generative AI and and your Arthur C. Clarke quote, which I love, uh, is, the, is there a real step change from AI to generative AI that's really enabling a whole suite of new possibilities that maybe weren't um, weren't as accessible, weren't as viable, um, weren't as magical as as when we were using um, just normal AI? In the case of radiology, you know, the answer is yes, because um, as, as Alex mentioned, it's a learning system. It's this iterative learning um, organism, as it were. And so while you can have a database of, you know, millions of, of radiology or x-ray of, of a mammogram, um, the, the ability to predict what a patient outcome should, could be based on that patient's demographics, comorbidities, age, other uh, mammograms that look like this, other incidents, it's, it's kind of learning the information all the time and be just becoming that more useful and accurate as an organism 
Vogue Mentor um, and support decision support tool for for um, radiologists and physicians. Thank you, um, Jay. Can I just add one more uh, one more thing to that? Absolutely, please. One of the biggest differences uh, and, and one of the most impressive things about generative AI is that generative AI is actually capable of creating its own data sets. Um, whereas historically we've been restricted to whatever we've got records for. And so as we start to see, you know, generative AI, uh, you know, in, you know, imaging is a great example. There's so many different kinds of cancer so many different rare kinds of, of disease that there just isn't a huge amount of data on. And generative AI can actually intake what data we do have from that and create um, a set of uh, images and data points and diagnoses and even the artificial patient histories that allow itself to uh, train in a much more effective uh, way on diseases that have incredibly rare occurrence or just, you know, don't have the level of attention that maybe they should have had historically. Yeah, and Alex, actually, just even picking up on that, sorry, Stephen, to interrupt, but um, I think it's apt to, to your point, which is, you know, we've invested in a company called Unlearn, Unlearn which is doing digital twinning in um, in clinical trials. And there's always been this ethical concern in clinical trials that you're the placebo arm and you really deserve the the actual therapy, the fact that you're not getting the therapy in the interest of bigger science, whereas now all patients can receive the therapy and the um, the uh, placebo arm will be a digital twin. To your point around creating data sets and having this predictive capability, um, you know, that, that will fundamentally change, you know, how we think about clinical trials as well. Well, Jay, I want to turn to you, but I, I actually want to dig into that for a second because that's really fascinating. Is there a regulatory um, pathway at this point that's clear with the FDA or other regulatory bodies around the world to, to allow for clinical studies that use digital placebo arms? Is that, or is that a conversation that's ongoing, I guess maybe is the way to say it. I think it's a conversation that's ongoing. I think what's well, what I know is happening today is the digital twin arms are being run in conjunction with the placebo arm, and they're looking to understand efficacy and accuracy, um, running them in parallel. I don't think anybody's ready to only hand it over to just the uh, the AI component, but um, you know, or the, the process is underway. Got and it. the FDA has approved um, the use of real world data and, and the analysis of real world data and simulation using it, uh, as part of the clinical trial process. So this is, uh, this is an ongoing conversation, but it's one that's, um, moving forward at a, at a pretty good clip. So interesting. Okay, Jay. So you and Alex collaborated on the report that we mentioned earlier, and in it, you sort of organized the world of generative AI into five areas where uh, generative AI solutions have the potential to make a large, significant difference. So to sort of abbreviate them, system cohesion, empowering patients, provider burnout, uh, medical devices as a category, and then ethics. Um what are you most excited about in the near term? So 12 to 18 months within those five uh, categories, um, what do you think is most interesting and 
um, has the most potential to both create value and be transformative to um, health and healthcare? Yeah, you know, I think that there's two of them there that are connected that I'm most excited about. When we talk to doctors, uh, you know, like Hillary, I think alluded to as well, there are is a lot of just computer time and screen time that they have to do in order to, you know, fill out the electronic medical records and, you know, downstream there's billing and all these other kinds of tasks that we think the generative AI is going to be able to help improve that process over time. Um, you know, I think that having more time to treat patients is what pretty much every doctor would rather have. And so being able to, you know, help with scribing and coding and summarizing notes for patients and things like that, I think that's going to be big. And I do think that that's something within that 12 to 18 month timeframe, you know, hospital systems and, and doctors are working on this, uh, are testing these kinds of solutions already. But I think that that also leads into the empowering of patients because, you know, I've certainly had the experience where I've gone into, uh, a, you know, for a doctor's appointment and, yeah, I wish I could remember a couple of the details and I, you know, perhaps forgot them. So I think that being able to, you know, get a, you know, a patient handout that's, you know, tailored for me, for like my uh, you know, based on my experience, who I am, my familiarity with the condition, you know, all of those things build trust in not only the provider that you're working with, but also the patient plan itself. And if you understand it and you have trust in it, then you're going to probably adhere to that patient plan better. So I think that's another thing too, that within this time period that we're going to get better at, and I think it's going to make for healthier people. Um, Alex, uh, what about you? Yeah, I mean, the the ability to take burden off providers um, is an enormous difference maker to my mind. Um, in, a, in a previous part of my life, I spent a lot of time working uh, with hospitals and health systems. And, you know, for as much attention as the, you know, sort of ambient documentation part of this gets, and, you know, it's well-deserved, there are so many other parts of uh, the, the clinical process that are incredibly time-consuming and incredibly tedious. When I think about the amount of time that providers spend on pre-visit planning, on reviewing medical records, on doing medication reconciliation, those are all areas that generative AI is actually incredibly well set up uh, to deal with. And so the ability to save, you know, uh, 10 out of 15 minutes of combing through a medical record before an appointment, because you've got a tool that can go through all of that text and give you a really good summary and a timeline and a breakdown of what medications a patient is on, potentially what their reaction and their response to those medications were. That's, you know, really impressive to me and, and something that I think will make a lot of people's lives easier. The other thing uh, that really excites me is something that Hillary called out, which is uh, the ability of generative AI to contribute to what's called synthetic imaging, where uh, imaging results can be uh, enhanced, uh, made more detailed, uh, with less time having to be spent uh, actually in the device or in the chamber or with smaller doses of contrast dyes and that opens up the ability to image people who are 
in higher risk categories who otherwise it wouldn't have been available to uh, to lower the cost of imaging to make it available to more uh, more and more people. And that's one of those things that, you know, it may not make headlines at any point, but it's going to make people's lives significantly better and it's really going to improve the quality of, of their treatment. You know, that is um, it's consistent with what we've been um, seeing also, which is a lot of the stuff that is uh, in play or coming um, isn't like as sexy or as forward facing, but behind the scenes has the potential to really transform a lot of processes and systems. And Hillary, as you articulated, like fix the system because it doesn't work very well for any of the um, parties involved. Uh, as long before we go too far from this, there's a number of questions that relate to the kind of how do you know about uh, how do you validate the the data that the that the system has created? You know, how do you you know you mentioned synthetic images? There was an article in I don't know if it was the Journal or the Post or something the other day um, that showed all of these different uh, kind of um, images and videos that OpenAI had had generated, and they all have weird things in them. Um, when you talk about, you know, the, the system can create data sets, how do you, how do we, how, how should we, why should we trust that? Um, you know, and especially, you know, chat GPT's kind of hallucinations are sort of well talked about and publicly. Um, so both, you know, how do we ensure that the data's, uh, right? And then at this point, Plain, you know, how are we going to convince people that it's that it's right? I mean, the simplest answer is that we shouldn't trust it offhand. Um, this is this is an incredibly important topic. This is something that needs to be, you know, really investigated, really dealt with, um, and really addressed. Um, these systems are capable of really extraordinary things, but none of them especially in healthcare, you know, should be trusted without a lot of people paying a lot of attention to it and giving it the attention it deserves. Um, we can look at historical data sets and do a level of statistical analysis that tells us that it's, they are, you know, dramatically lacking in data on minority populations in women tell us that, you know, historically, um, there were groups of people that were under referred for treatment um and therefore uh the the diagnosis history for them isn't as robust and therefore an ai algorithm may be less likely to recommend treatment for them now we can identify that and see that because of statistical analysis and so we can apply that same statistical analysis and say that a generative AI data set designed to fill in those gaps is doing it in a way that is, you know, uh, mathematically accurate, um, that is meaningful uh, in the sense that it's not just filling in data, it's actually making a difference in what recommendations are produced or what diagnoses are produced. Um, but no, I mean, these are, these are really, uh, excellent questions. I think we should be skeptical. Um, the potential here is phenomenal, but you know the 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 stakeholders need to be involved. Whether that's 
the scientists, the, the pharmaceutical companies, the providers, the patients, and the, the regulatory authorities. The fact that there aren't currently standards for this stuff, you know, is something that that should be addressed. The fact that, you know, we don't have definitions for for what is and is not acceptable, um, you know, is, is something that needs to be handled. Um, but ultimately, these are resolvable questions. We just have to commit to being willing to to answer them. Jay or Hillary, anything else on, to add on this particular point? I think it's a really important one because if people ultimately don't trust the 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 data, the system, all the the potential for a lot of these applications to really have the transformative uh, effect that that we think that they can is becomes a, a bit more limited. No, I think a good analogy for this is probably just you know the first Teslas that were doing self driving cars. You know, there was uh, they were going to drive through red robots or traffic lights. I'm from South Africa. They're going to try. They're going to drive through tra traffic lights. They're going to have accidents. People are going to get killed. Um, don't take your hands off the steering wheel. Um, and that was six, seven years ago. That was even before pre-COVID. I, I think there's just a, a level of comfort, a level of additional data, many more proof points um, that we require. And you know, today. Sure, we don't, you know, allow cars to drive themselves, uh, but, you know, self-driving and autonomous vehicles have come a very long way. Uh, and certainly in places like um, like China, autonomous vehicles are delivering your Uber Eats or, and, you know, um, without any human intervention. So I think this is just a question of time and sequencing um, rather than a question of um, if it's just a question of when. Yeah, I would just I would just add to that, too, and underscore the fact that humans need to be in the loop for the foreseeable future. Um, I think that especially when I think users are in situations where they're under a lot of pressure and they get this answer that kind of looks great. I mean, that's kind of the moment where we need to remember that, you know, mistakes can happen and that, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're, you know, training our users to, you know, just validate, make sure that everything makes sense, and also provide that feedback. I think I would also maybe add too that you know even with today's models, you know there are tens or hundreds of thousands of people kind of on the back end of you know ChatGPT and, and other big models like that that are taking in input from users and making tweaks and feeding new information back into the model with corrections and things like that. So I think that's important to keep in mind because it just underscores the idea that these aren't magic boxes that are giving us you know, interesting and correct answers. They're systems that are developing and being refined. Um, and if you know that, then I think that it suddenly becomes a little bit more obvious to the user that yes, I do need to validate what this says. It's like the summary is great, but did they leave out some of the important facts that I need to make, make sure that my patient is aware of? So I think that, again, just this kind of literacy almost around the artificial intelligence and the tools that you're using is going to be key to make sure that we do continue to use them in a way that's responsible. Yeah, sounds like very much a journey that we're on. Hillary, coming back to you. So this report uh, contains some really big claims about the potential for AI to transform healthcare. It, it cites an, a previous study from Accenture saying generative AI has the potential to automate or augment 
39% of all working hours in the healthcare industry. I had to read that a few times when I saw it. And I mean, that is a, a huge number. Um, McKinsey, it cited a McKinsey study that if you apply generative AI to unstructured healthcare data, you could create a trillion dollars in value. And that's just essentially doing one thing. So when will we start to see these kinds of large scale opportunities? And I think they probably span between your rubric of fixing and enhancing. Like, you know, if we're talking about trillions of dollars, or at least we'll start with one, a trillion dollars of value and, and you know, potentially um, replacing or changing 40% of all of the time that any healthcare, somebody in the healthcare industry spends doing something. Is this like a three-year journey, a five-year journey, a 10-year journey, uh, longer than that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's already opportunities that we're seeing or actual use cases, um, and some of them are mundane, you know, prior authorization, like, you know, the amount of effort gone, 10 days to get prior author on certain disease types and certain, you know, certain approvals, um, you know, a company that we've invested in, Rhyme, is able to, the AI goes out and finds all the various data sources across all the various systems, pulls them in one place, summarizes it all, and gives the person doing prior auth all the information they need to make the decision. So it's a very much a decision to support tool, but that completely enhanced and augmented by the speed with which the, the tool can go and um, get the information needed. So that's super mundane, but if I think about the millions of dollars spent on prior auth, it's probably like, you know, contributing in some measure towards one trillion. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, there's probably hundreds of little things like that, you know. And so on, on the one hand, you know, there's just, I don't think there's any one enormous thing that's going to add up to a trillion. There's going to be lots and lots and lots of littles. Um, you know, claims processing, RCM, all of these things are ripe for, for, for that. And then on the other hand, there's just decision support that, um, you know, I think about a company that we've invested in, Ailey Labs. So um, Ailey is, is, um, is a company that's working um, with pharmaceutical companies in sort of the office of the chairman, the office of the CFO, helping them make capital allocation decisions around where and how to invest, um, uh, you know, just pharma dollars on which therapeutic areas, by which drug type, into which country. How do I think about that scenario planning, kind of your FPNA world? Um, but think about that FPNA world applied to specific scenario planning that you need to do in a pharma company, whether that's on clinical trials and how fast they're going to happen, supply chain, um, and you know, and and some of the the contingencies there. And uh, you know, I think if you were to speak to, and I know that he's on record doing this, Paul Hudson at Sanofi um, is on record saying that you know his standardization of Sanofi on play, it's PL. AI play, which is their um, internal tool built on Ailey, um, has fundamentally changed the way these organizations are already doing business. So, you know, you add up, you know, uh, multiple companies engaging in the same behavior, and I think you pretty rapidly actually get to a trillion or even more. Um, and then you take something like, you know, uh, a company called VizAI, um, which is um, a stroke detection platform, but it's not just helping uh, predict and detect the real kind of severity of of um, of an incident, but it's also 
um, pulling in all the um, the workflow and the various disciplines that need to engage around a stroke patients. And if you, you know, in, in those kind of situations where a stroke is, is, is identified, that kind of large vessel, vessel occlusion, 10 minutes makes a difference. 15 minutes makes a difference to outcomes. And so the faster that you can get this kind of workflow and AI working together, the faster you can actually manage the outcomes to a better point, that is going to save money long-term regardless. So, you know, I don't know if it's three years, five years, whatever, but I'm already seeing evidence of um, companies engaging, um, you know, in experimentation and usage that's already making a difference. So on the, the whether it's three years, five years, um, uh, very encouraging that you're already seeing this sorts of experimentation. You know, healthcare as an industry is not, generally the fastest when it comes to adopting new technologies and and for a host of reasons some of which are very comforting that you want to validate things before you start tinkering with patients um some of them that are more just maddening because of the ways that decisions get made and bureaucracies and processes and things like that what are the you're invested in a bunch of companies that are in AI and now in generative AI and um, you know what are what are the barriers that you are seeing to the adoption of of this kind of new generation of technologies and are they any different than the barriers that any new generation of technologies has um, navigated through when um, working in the healthcare industry? I think um, we've mentioned a couple of them already. So the first is this risk aversion because you're dealing with patient lives and because the consequences are, um, you know, not um, you, you, you know, can be can be out of order and in mag you know in magnitude, um, and so there is a lot of risk aversion. Um, and the healthcare industry, frankly, has you know um, you know been subject to making wrong decisions and things like that. So people are, are rightly risk averse and should be. The second is just regulatory oversight, which is what we just talked about. I mean, healthcare is a very regulated industry. Uh, we have data privacy rules for a reason. Um, you know, if you just take a look and for those of you who are following the news, um, you know, um, United slash Optum's uh, change healthcare uh, data outage over the past week has taken down claims management and pharmaceutical uh, processing. And, uh, you know, that very much shows the kind of impact that you know, being um, uh, uh, being reliant on any one system can have, um, and just the impact of you know um, mal actors um, in cybersecurity and things like that. So there needs to be regulatory oversight, and there has to be appropriate risk aversion. Um, you know, the third thing that I think is very because um, it's just very relevant to healthcare, which may not apply to other regulated industries like financial services and that, because there's lots of you know, regulated industries, is just payments and incentives. Uh, and so, you know, in this industry in particular, who's going to pay uh, lands up being a big a, you know, barrier to adoption or at least a thought process around adoption. And, um, you know, my own personal theory around this is that payment is actually going to be or who 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 ultimately is going to fund this is going to be split across the value chain, depending on where the value resides. And it's not just going to be the responsibility of the payer uh, to pay 
you know, VizAI, the example that I mentioned, um, you know, they actually got CMS approval for VizAI as an overlay um, to be built um, as part of, um, of, of stroke detection and management. Um, and that's the first time, in, to my knowledge, that CMS has actually adopted a new technology um, as part of their NTAP, so new technology add-on payment. Uh, so it's an NTAP protocol that, that sits within um, the IPPS inpatient perspective payment protocol um, for CMS. And so I, I do think that where there's evidence of um, ROI, the payers are going to um, change the way that they reimburse. But at the same time, I think providers, patients, um, you know, pharma, pharma companies, uh, the, the, the payment's going to be split across the ecosystem, but that's going to be a natural barrier to adoption. And then finally, um, you know, something that I don't think is uncommon to this industry, but there are a lot of incumbents and, and those incumbents hold a lot of market share. And, you know, Epic being a big one, and we all like Epic and Epic's actually a very um, innovative company, but, you know, they own the the patient's desk, the, the, the physician's desktop. And so if they're starting to adopt AI, sure, the, invest, the physicians will adopt. But for some of our companies we might invest in, um, it's incumbent on them to figure out how they get into the doctor's workflow. And it's hard to get into the doctor's workflow to drive adoption if um, if that workflow is owned by an incumbent like an Epic. So these are some of the just natural things that I think will slow progression as to you know who's going to be the point of contact in the face to those who are adopting. Yeah. Um, Jay, on this topic of of sort of adoption, you've worked across um, a number of industries, and you know, automotive, energy, publishing, like in addition to healthcare, which um, makes you uh, sometimes a kind of a rare um, bird in the universe of people I encounter. Um, you know, do, do you see the barriers and, you know, obviously not just talking about generative AI because you that's relatively new, but in terms of waves of new types of technology and in other industries you've you've worked in, uh, are the barriers to adoption more problematic in healthcare? I think Hillary did a really nice job of laying out kind of a, a framework for what those are. Um, you know, anything, any comments based on other industries? And and if so, anything that you've seen that can help with the uptake that some other industry has done particularly well? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. The, the answer depends on if we're, you know, like you said, we're talking about AI generally or generative AI specifically. I think, you know, if we're talking about AI generally, um, you know, I think that there's industry specific things that, uh, companies might be more excited to jump on and less, you know, I think AI generally is a little less scary because we've been doing like machine learning and stuff like that for a long time. I mean, um, you back to the automotive example, I mean, autonomous cars are, are full of AI and they've been, you know, training models and things like that for a long, long time. I would say though, that like what I'm noticing that's actually kind of surprising but actually comforting as well is how good people are at detecting generative AI content. So there've been some news articles recently, you know, around the use of AI images in like advertising or on TV shows or things like that. Um, and people can spot it a lot of times, um, same with text. So you can, you know, sometimes just kind of get a feel for like, you know, hey, you know what, this just doesn't sound exactly quite right to me, or this sounds maybe different than another part of a text. 
And so I do think that there is a, you know, like in publishing, for example, or media, um, that there's different barriers there because again, it's dependent on trust. If I get a textbook and it feels very AI generated, I'm not gonna really, you know, feel like I got a good value for it. I might not trust the information. Um, so I, re I really think that it, it varies, but if you wanted to like summarize all of it down to something, it's just, you know, if you've got a business and it depends on trust with the people who are paying you, then you need to do everything you can in order to make sure that that trust is maintained and the quality is maintained uh, and use these tools responsibly. So yeah, I think that's where I would take it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds just circling back to that question that we were digging into a little bit earlier about the veracity of the data and how we ensure that regulate it and and then develop a level of trust that people ultimately are are comfortable with is going to be one of the key steps to more widespread adoption of of this this particular type of technology um you know jay I, um you know hillary was talking about the various kind of barriers to to adoption and one of those um is around payments and um you know VSP is a um largest vision um insurance company payer in the in the country i'm just wondering how how are you're obviously giving a lot of thoughts to generative ai and and just how are you thinking about adopting it maybe in your own business um how are you thinking about potentially covering solutions um that uh, that incorporate generative AI. Sort of where where are you on that curve of um, of thinking that through? Yeah, we're. I mean, it's certainly something that we're exploring. You know, I think that we don't uh, in managed vision care we don't necessarily have the same complexity of billing that medical insurance typically has, just in terms of the number of conditions and. Um, things that are covered. And so there's a little bit less complexity there. So it's definitely something that we're working on. I know one recent project that we did really looked at the different kinds of pathways that would be required in order to uh, technically implement certain solutions based on what kind of outcomes we wanted to get. So again, just having that, um, that intelligence and understanding within an organization to identify like, is this something that we can use an off the shelf product for? Is this something that we have to build the model for ourselves in order to be able to do the things we want to do? Um, you know, maybe there's a feature within an existing product and things like that. Um, I think that understanding what those pathways are and how to navigate those in an efficient way are, are really kind of where we're focused on uh, at the moment. What about um, sort of the ethical considerations? You know, there's, there's a lot of different, um, there are, there are some of the same ethical considerations that we've seen forever in healthcare involving patient data and and um but there's some that that have that seem more complicated with generative ai and wondering how you see that and also maybe vis-a-vis -vis other industries which you've had um you know so much other experience in yeah I mean, I do think that there's an ethical requirement to make sure that people are getting what they uh, expect from you. So, you know, if you're going to a doctor, you're expecting that doctor to, um, you know, examine you and, and, you know, identify what's what's going on and, and come up with a treatment plan. And you're expecting them to do that using the best tools that they have. 
I think that sometimes, you know, for decision support, then, you know, an AI tool might be great because it could help to validate a particular diagnosis. Um, you might be able to, you know, use it to come up with a first draft of a treatment plan and things like that. But there's still this ethical duty to make sure that you're providing the best possible um, care to that patient. Um, I think that also there's an ethical, you know, when we're looking at AI generally, um, making sure that we are setting expectations appropriately for systems that are autonomous. I mean, I think the automotive industry is the area where that's um, been really important. I mean, back in my Ford days, I think that, you know, I don't, I can't speak for them, but I know personally, I was expecting to have fully autonomous cars a lot sooner uh, than now. I, I expected my next car to be able to do that. But I think what we're finding is there's this last mile problem. And so, um, you know, we're certainly able to use semi-autonomous systems on more than just, you know, five major highways in the U.S. or in certain geographies that are um, geofenced, uh, which is the case for a lot of these current self-driving tests that are going on. Um, so I think that when we, you know, talk about the different kinds of like features in a car and what they can do for you, we have you have an ethical duty to make sure that they really understand the implications and so that they don't again trust too much. Um, and I think that um, you know many of the companies are are, are doing that well. It's great, it's a terrific perspective. Um, I just said I'd add one thing to that, but just think of the world where you do get to a point where you can trust um, how how you know mind you know changing that could be you know as an example, there's a small company called Kintsugi. It's looking at voice intonation and snippets of voice to identify depressive, depressive disorders. And so if I'm a person who calls into, you know, I don't know, an, you know, an, an optional or signal or, 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 or some kind of help center, and if, if, um, if the, the AI can provide the agent on the other end of the phone with some indicators as the person's mental state and help that agent triage the patients into the right care just based on voice intonation sure we need millions of data points to, to be able to and we need to have double check that you know the the voice intonation that's being picked up and the the words that have been spoken and what the patient's saying correlates with actual you know real real world di diagnoses um but wow that could be grain changing so I, you know i think that um you know, there's a lot of experience going on. There is one, um, uh, there's a couple of, of, of large payers who are have proof of concepts going on with Kintsugi right now around, um, you know, testing and experimenting with that. You know, who knows how long until everybody feels comfortable that there is sufficient proof point. But when there is, it's going to be game changing for someone who joined, who calls a health center and who's not feeling great. It's a great example. Um let me so Hillary, I'll stick with you. I, the and kind of related to what you were just describing. So I I um I was moderating a panel the other day, and one of the panelists was from a very large radiology company, and they developed internally an AI overlay. I think I don't think it's necessarily generative AI, but for this purpose, it doesn't matter. And they've shown that it helps make an accurate diagnosis 15% more frequently than without it. Uh it's not replacing diagnosis, but it's a diagnostic aid and it makes the whole process 15% more effective. Um, but it's not reimbursed in the US. So this this AI overlay and they charge for it. So 
they charge patients directly a small fee. And what they've seen, which is probably not surprising, is that in wealthy areas, and their clinics are located in wealthy areas, patients pay for it. And in uh, more under-resourced communities, they don't. And so when new technologies come up, and in particular, vis-a-vis this conversation in generative AI, is the are there opportunities for generative AI to reduce healthcare disparities, or is it likely to sort of exacerbate equity issues that plague our system? Of which that example I gave is just one very small example of how that plays out uh, in real life. Um, I do have a point of this, and I know I see Alex nodding his head as well here. I actually think that. Um, uh, where we're headed is much greater equity, much greater equality as a result of what AI can produce. Um, I think that it will be game changing. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, you know, we have a, a saying here at Insight that um, there are more radiologists on one street in Boston, which happens to be Longwood Avenue, if any of you come from Boston, than there are literally in multiple countries in West Africa. And so, you know, the, the, so the access to care is what AI is radically going to change. And not just the access to care, but the access to the best diagnosis, the access to the best of, um, of, of what the, the medical industry has to offer. Idovin, for example, is this portfolio company um, that has a cloud for all EKGs. And it's constantly looking at how do you um, how do you interpret those EKGs across millions of people, millions of patient populations. You know, for the one EKG center in Nairobi or wherever it is, that physician who doesn't see that many cases, who doesn't you know hasn't got a cohort of colleagues all to to collaborate with, being able to upload that to the cloud to get information from colleagues globally. Um, I mean, this is a workflow coupled with AI, but I think it's all going to be workflow coupled with AI. Um, so those kind of things are enormous. Forta is another example. There is a chronic shortage of qualified autism specialists in this country. Like people who have children who um, who need help um, are on waiting lists for months and months to get help. Well, AI has, you know, Forta has an, has an app that's built with AI that um, helps create learning programs that turns a mom or a dad into almost as good as a nurse protect practitioner. Um, the nurse practitioner still has to be there, there still has to be oversight, but you can get a long way um, just with at-home help. Um, you know, and, and the final thing I'd say about this is I think that something like language translation, um, the communication between a physician, all of that is, and, and, and a patient, that's all of that is gonna just drive greater, greater health equity. Um, I, I'll hand over to Alex, because I know that he's got a lot to say here as well. Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, AI is just a tool and it's gonna depend on how we use it. Um, if we decide that we don't really care and that we're okay with everything being, you know, uh, dependent on the ability of people to pay for it and what companies and, and what healthcare systems, you know, are, are willing to invest in it, then yeah, it, it's going to make things worse. It's going to exacerbate the problem. On the other hand, if we're willing to use it uh, for all the things that Hillary mentioned, then it has the potential to make an enormous difference. Um, the the other thing I want to mention is I think Hillary covered a lot of the questions of access and 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 other things really well. Is a lot of the issues that we've seen uh, with um, quality of care and equity of care have to do with 
not just the ability to access care, but with the kinds of recommendations that an algorithm gives, the kinds of care that people are offered even when they have access to it. And that's another area where generative AI is capable of making uh, uh, some really big differences. Um, we've talked about you know, the, the issues with data sets, but for example, when we look at uh, precision medicine and when we look at the, uh, the effects of different medications on different demographic groups, the effects of different medications on people of different ages, um, the effects of medications on people with different medication regimes. What we discover is that things like dosage, things like uh, which combinations uh, work best are incredibly variable. And the, the standard of care tends to be based on very limited data sets uh, of very limited populations. Generative AI has the capacity and we have companies that are that are looking at this. We have companies that have products in this space uh, to provide really detailed, specialized breakdowns of not just, you know, the potential factors involved, but what medications are going to work best for an individual person, what their treatment regimens should look like, what the dosages should be. Uh, and, and that is going to be an enormous difference maker in terms of not just access to care, but the effectiveness of care uh, across the breadth of um, human variation. Um, do you, we have two minutes left. So maybe um, last question. There's a, a question in the, in the chat that relates to education and training of medical professionals. And just if, if you have seen anything um, that wasn't addressed in the report, but it's an interesting question, is does generative AI play a meaningful role? Are you seeing anything out there? I don't know if Hillary, you're um, you're seeing any companies that are using generative AI um, specifically around education and training. Um, it's definitely going to play a huge role. I think that um, what you're really referring to is just the kind of staff augmentation. We know that there's a chronic shortage of nurses in the US. It's a hard job. There's a lot of administrative manual um, work associated with the role. And, and most people go into the profession because they're carers, because they want to give, because the, the mission of, of being with patients and supporting and helping patients is, is where they're focused. Um, and so there's all going to be this, this um, component of training folks on the new AI, training them on the use of these new tools. As Alex says, at the end of the day, it's just a tool. But if those tools can really free up time to enable people to do their passion, which is really heal uh, and be part of a profession that is a healing system, not just a sick care system, but a real healthcare system, um, I think that you know we, we should only but embrace AI. The areas where we're seeing the most solutions pop up right now that are using generative AI are in surgery where uh, AR and VR simulation of surgery, um, whether it's for education and training, whether it's for preparation and rehearsal, uh, has some really astonishing uh, uh, possibilities. Uh, and generative AI, because of its ability to create in real time, you know, a, a, a live simulation with events and you know, not just a really simple, you know, replicant of the human body, but the kind of, you know, really in-depth, detailed, physiological, digital twin that we've talked about earlier uh, is pretty impressive. And I 
would imagine that it's only a matter of time until we see that kind of tech applied to, you know, other medical simulations, uh, anatomical training, things like that. Such an interesting conversation, such an interesting future that we have with generative AI helping improve health and healthcare. I'm really looking forward to the possibilities and appreciate um, all three of your perspectives. Um, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks thank very you. Much. Thanks for including us. Thank you.